You're listening to another great Torah class, recorded by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good evening. Welcome. Tonight's Jewish Executive Learning Network share is going to be on the Parsha. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Tzav, which is the second Parsha in the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I'm mamish, 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 so excited to be here. New week, new Parsha. Thrilled to do it for some housekeeping. First and foremost, I want to give a special thank you to our illustrious uh, host who has requested a little bit of uh, anonymity, but I want to give our host a bracha, uh, and we thank this special person for opening up his or her home, trying to keep the anonymity, uh, and welcoming us to, to learn entire. Is that, is that helpful enough? Is that anonymous enough? Okay, but uh, we really, really wish to thank this person for opening up their home. And uh, to Debray Torah and uh, setting up a place that a lot of young professionals can come learn tonight. And we're really, really appreciative. And I hope that the words of Torah we learn tonight should reverberate your walls even after we'll all go back to our respective homes and places tonight. So, really, really big Yashukayach for that. Want to say thank you. Also, want to give a special acknowledgement to uh, my Yadid, my special friend, Talmud, almost like a, one of my kids, Noah Freed. Uh, for sponsoring tonight's shear. Today is Noah's birthday. We want to thank him for sponsoring the shear. want to thank Noah for filming uh, virtually all of the Jewish Executive Learning Network shiurim. Um, Noah films almost uh, probably 80-90% of the yeah. classes we ever have. The ones that look good, the ones that if I, if I look, look bad, it's like yeah, if, if I look crooked or, or funny or something like that, my head looks, I don't know, disproportionate or whatever. Noah didn't film it. Really want to thank Noah very much. Kodesh Baruch Hu should bless you as, as I always wish for you. Merit Hashem, you should have taste, every form of bracha, spiritual, material, shidduch wise, financial, and toyer shafs, poiskim, and everything else in between. And I'm very, very appreciative for your loyalty and friendship and kindness and sponsorship. You believe he sponsored $20,000 for tonight's class. Okay, I'm just, I'm just, just being friendly. But anyway, <laughs> if anybody else would like to do that, you're welcome and wanted to. Um, but anyway, Noah, thank you very, very much. Speaking of sponsorships, Purim is almost upon us. Um, for those of you out there who haven't yet done so, don't forget to line up your tzedakah, your matanas labyonim, all your tzedakah, uh, your tzedakah pledges and givings and gifts. For those of you who'd like to give to the Jewish Executive Learning Network, we're happy to receive tzedakah at this time of year when everybody else is giving to all kinds of Jewish organizations. If you go to jeln.org, there's a donate page if you enjoy the classes, the videos, the programs, and everything else we put out. We're happy to uh, let you perform a mitzvah with us and on us and through us in the, uh, in the coming days of Purim. Anyway, let's get started with Parshat Tzav. So Parshat Tzav starts out, uh, chapter 6, verse 2, it says, Command Aaron and his son, saying, this is the law of the, of the elevation offering, the Korban idol. We're going to speak about that. Now, as an overview, Parshat Tzav is going to speak about a lot of the themes we visited in recent weeks, dating back to the book of Shemois in the beginning of Ayikra. We're going to talk about the Mishkan and the Parsha. We're going to speak about the Korbanos, the offerings in the temple. We're going to speak about the Kohanim. We're going to speak about these topics yet again. So it's very important to remain focused as to why is it that the Torah makes a big deal. We have to speak about this again. What is the Torah trying to convey to us? Repent, mention these topics again. So I would like to spend a moment to speak out a Vart, a Dvar Torah that might seem at surface unrelated, but it's going to answer up. What do we have to visit these topics again? So if you look in the book of Ovadia, what's Ovadia? That's even a book in Tanakh. Yeah, it is. Many people never went through Nach. The rest of the books of the prophets after the Chumash, but it's there, the book of Ovadia. The Novi brings over there a Pasuk chapter 1, verse 18. And the Novi Ovadia compares the Jewish nation to a fire. He compares the Jewish nation to the uh, fire. The Pasuk says over there, the house of Yaakov will be a fire, and the house of Yosef is a flame. So the Jewish people, Yaakov, Yosef, were compared to a fire or a flame. Jewish people compared to fire. But if you look at Tanakh, you also find over there that the Jewish people aren't, the non-Jews of the world aren't compared to a fire. The non-Jews of the world are compared to water. Dovra Melech, King David, in a Pesach in Tehillim, he speaks about that in chapter 144, verse 7. And he says, release me uh, and rescue me from great waters. The great waters he's referring to is not swimming lessons and he doesn't know how to swim. Hey, help me, I don't know how to swim. The great waters that he feels is going to undate him is the Gaims, the Umas Ha'ilam, the nations of the world that he felt were threatening him. So the Navi Ovadia compares the Jewish people to a fire. 
And Dovra Melech compares the nations of the world to water. Okay, so those are the two points. That, now we set it up, let's go further. So the Ponevichirov, Rav Kahanim and Zatzal, who started the famous Ponevich Yeshiva, he said something very interesting. He goes, what, how does the world work? We always know that water extinguishes fire. And if water's going to come into contact with fire, who's going to win? Normally, normally water's going to win. Water's going to extinguish the fire. So he says, so what does that mean? If you know the Pasuk and Ovadia, Jewish people are fire, and David Amalek says the nations of the world are water, what does that mean? We're going to be in Gaulus and exile for thousands of years, and, that, and they're basically, we're going to come in contact with the nations of the world, and, and, and we're going to be extinguished, God forbid? What does that mean? Is that what's going to happen to us in the Gaulus, the exile? The water is going to extinguish the fire? How does it work? So listen to what the Panavishirov says. He answers with a brilliant vart. He says, Bashem the Ma'aral. The Ma'aral of Prague, he said it in his name. He says, of course the answer is not Hasvisholam. He says, yes, it is true that water normally extinguishes fire, but that's only when there's no barrier between the two elements. You hear? If water and fire come into direct contact, almost always the water's gonna win. The water's gonna extinguish the fire. That's if there's no gedarim, no boundaries. There's no, there's no, there's nothing separating the two. That's what's gonna happen. Then that's when their contact is great and it's absolute. But what happens, says the Ma'aral, if there is a separation between them, let's say there's a pot or a pan, a frying pan, a pot or something like that, and you know, the pot's boiling water. And then there's the pot that's separating something between the fire. What happens? Not only is the fire not being extinguished by the water, but the opposite. The fire is able to have a constructive impact uh, on that water itself. And he said, and that's what happens when there's a secure barrier between the two. Said the pun of Zhirov, he said, that's what the point is over here. He said, water and fire, one is going to extinguish the other. And the Jewish people, if we go through the Gaulists, through the thousands of years of exile, we have no gedara, no boundaries between us and the nations of the world. We're going to be extinguished. We're going to disappear individually, communally, familially, collectively. That's what's going to happen. If we walk around all day, and the way we think and act and walk and talk and laugh and react and entertain ourselves and everything else is just like everybody else in the world. What's going to happen eventually is that, is that water is going to extinguish the fire. But the Torah has distinct ways that a Jew should probably try to bring himself into conformity, not just with mitzvahs, but there's a Jewish way of acting and spending time and, and what we find funny and what we don't and what amuses us and what we find sad and what we find happy. There's ways we talk and walk and think and pray and spend our free time and serve Hashem. There's all these different things. And those are the boundaries that separate us from everyone else in the world. And if we have those and we keep those in place, not only is our experience in exile that we're not going to get washed away and extinguished, chas v'shalom, but fakert, the opposite, what will happen is that the water uh, will basically actually be transformed in a positive way and will be the orlegoyim, the, the light unto the nations of the world. We'll have a positive impact on them. But we have to have some kind of boundaries that separate us. So why am I even talking about this in the beginning of Parshish Tzav? We have to know that I'm bringing this stuff, we should keep our focus. This parasha starts again with the Mishkan and the Karbonis and Kaihanim and all of these. All of these things serve to remind us again and again and again, a Kaddish Baruch who's putting this in the tire to remind us we're different, we're special. We're not intended to be a copy of everybody else in the world. We wish everybody well, we're happy for them. But we have to know that there's a great deal that makes us what we say in Yiddish, Andersh. Andersh means different. We're different. We're different. We're different. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to remember it. And the way the Rabbi Shalayim wants us to serve Hashem, the Karbanis, the Kahanim, Mamleches Kahanim, a nation, a priest, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to remember that. And he repeats these things again and again to bring that nation, uh, that bring that notion home that we are a separate nation. We're supposed to have some kind of boundaries. And on that note, I would point out quickly, I never like it when people use that expression. There's such a thing they call about Judeo-Christian values, you know? Like, like we're like what we believe is Yidin, as, as Jews. It's like the same as everybody else in the world. And I always say there's a lot more that separates us from the, from the Christian world than a little hyphen, you know, Judeo-Christian. You know, it's basically the same thing. You know, they eat matzo ball soup, and we don't, but, like, you know, it's the same thing. There's just a little hyphen, Judeo-Christian. It's not Judeo-Christian, you know what I mean? Our values is not the same as everybody else in the world. Certainly, now, if you know what the Tyra says, so that's the idea in the Indian over there. Okay, Tzav, Parsha's Tzav. So the name of our Parsha is derived from one of the first words in the Tyra. The Tyra says, command Aaron 
Tzav Aaron. Tzav is like mitzvah, Tzav, command. Command Aaron. Aaron, my ancestor from the Kaihanim, Aaron, Moshe's brother. Command Aaron and his son, saying, this is the, the law of the elevation offering. The elevation offering, one of the karbonists discussed in our parish, a big deal, called the carbon oila. Oila means like up, elevation, up, carbon oila. That's what I'm going to speak about. So why is it called sav? Normally, when a Kurdish Baruch who gives a mitzvah, how does he give it? He uses the word, he says, daber, which means to speak or emor. Normally, a mitzvah is introduced with daber, that um, Hashem spoke to us, or via Moshe, daber, or lashen amira, lashen emor, parshas emor is going to be coming up. Emor, that's the way it is. It's the only place you find sav, sav, command, command Aaron and his sons, telling them, ba, 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 ba. Why tzav? Why command? What's this about? What's the concept here? So the answer, Rashi says, is tzav carries a connotation of encouraging a person to action. Tzav is the language of you want to encourage a person to take action. Why is that important? So Rashi brings over here an important idea. It's important, and it says tzav in the context of a carbon oila, because as a koyin, a koyin suffers here what we call chesron kiss. Chesron kiss means a loss of money. How does it work? Normally when a koyin brings a carbon, a koyin brings, get, there's a carbon brought, the koyin gets to keep the, the hides of the animal in the base of mikdash. That's his own share. It's good stuff. It's valuable. And also he gets to eat from the, from the meat, from the flesh. He gets to eat some of that. But when you bring a carbon oila, what happens? What happens over here, it's different. The Kayan only gets the hides, but the entire animal, the rest of it, is going to get burned up. So the Kayan has what's called chesron kiss, basically a loss of money. He's, he's chesaron in the kiss in his pocket. He's going to lose some of the money. And so therefore, so the Kayan might not want to do this. Uh, listen, leave me alone. <laughs> let uh, Yankel, he's on duty. Let, 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 uh, let Baruch, let him go bring it. Leave me alone. I don't want to be involved in this carbon on my duty. I'm, I'm going to... I'm not going to get to what I normally would get. So therefore, Rashi says it's tzav, command in that fashion. Okay, and that's why tzav is command and encourage in a nice way in the context of the carbon ayla. Ad Khan, up to there, that's Rashi. Okay, that's just setting up the background. Listen to what the Chedusha Harim wanted to say. Unbelievable idea. He says, why is the idea of chesron kiss, loss of money, emphasized so much in the context of a carbon ayla? So he says like this. He says something very nice. Chidush Arim was the first Ger Rebbe. He says like this. Kiss can mean a cover. Kiss can mean a cover for something. And chesroin means a lack. Like chesroin. Chesroin means a lack. And chesroin is lack. And kiss means a cover. Lacking a cover. It could mean like you're basically you're taking a hit in the wallet. That's chesroin kiss. But it also means chesroin kiss can also mean lacking a cover. What's lacking a cover? So said the Chidush Ayrim like this. If you look at a human body closely, you realize that almost every part of your body has a cover. Almost every part of your body has a cover on it. Did you know that? It's true. Your eyes have a cover. So cover your eyes. It's your eyelids, yeah? And that could prevent you from something that you're not supposed to look at. The Torah speaks about Shmir Sanaim. It's supposed to guard your eyes. Something you're not supposed to see. You look away. Shmir Sanaim. You can close your eyes. Your eyes have a kiss. They have a cover. Okay, good. How about your mouth? Your mouth has a cover also. Not everybody uses it. Sometimes we, we, we need a little encouragement to use it more. Sometimes. All of us almost all the time, one time or another. But we have lips and we have teeth. You can shut your mouth. The mouth has a kiss. It has a cover, yeah? Multiple covers. Even your ears have a cover. There's a Gemara in Ksuvis that Hamad Beis brings over there, a Brice that I'll be small. And the Brice says that the reason Hashem made that your earlobes over here are soft is so that the Brice says in Ksubis on, on 5B that if you're going to hear something inappropriate, you can take your ear, the soft part, and shove it into there. Even your ears have a kiss, yeah? Really, that's a Gemara. The Gemara says it in Ksubis, the beginning of the Masechta. So everything has a kiss. Everything has one. Chedusha Harim says there's only one really ultra-important part of the body that has no kiss, no cover, and that is the human mind. There is nothing comparable to an eyelid or lips or teeth or something that can block inappropriate thoughts and ideas from coming into your head. There's nothing that works in that fashion, okay? So he says that our minds, our brains, as Jews, are chesra and kiss, our minds to the extent to which that they have no cover. 
I mean, I, I mean, get, unless you can your hair or your yarmulke or, you know, or something like that. But in a natural sense, like if, if, if a thought pops into your head and you don't want it to be there, it's not like you can shut your eyes or, you know, or, or close your mouth. It doesn't work in that way, right? So the mind says, Chidush HaRim is Chesrain Kiss. So this is very nice, Tyra. But what does this have to do with the carbon ayla? What does this have to do with the carbon ayla? Shui, this is what I was telling you, Yushalmi, before Geshmat, okay? There's a Yushalmi, the Gemara says in the Jerusalem Talmud Yushalmi, Perikhes, Halachazayin, and that same idea you find in the Medjah Vayikar Rabbah, Parshazayin, Ois Gimel. It says over there that the carbon ayla, what do you bring a carbon ayla for? All the different carbonists, the offerings are there to be mechaper, to atone for a different thing. What does a carbon oila bring? Carbon oila is brought to atone for, da -da -da -da, drum roll, inappropriate thoughts. How you like that? It's a chazal. The Medr says it, and it says that in Yushalmi. The reason you bring a carbon oila is to atone for inappropriate thoughts. Okay, that's the idea. Where does the chazal learn it out? The Novi Yecheskel, the prophet Yecheskel, Ezekiel, he says this in his works. We all have to learn Nach. We should make a separate Nach here to learn this up. It's all in there. These people never don't get around to it. Chapter 20, verse 32, and this is what the prophet Yecheskel says, and the Ola, the carbon Ola, shall be for your mind. Thoughts that should not be. It's a Posik and Tanach. The Ola is for thoughts. So it's Yerushalmi, it's a Medrash and but it's going on that idea. So says the Chidush HaRim, it comes at Kishmak, it comes at very nice, right? So therefore, why is it that the Chesroin kiss, Rashi is going with sugar Chesroin kiss, eh, a big Chesroin kiss, you know, in the context of the carbon oil, why is he talking about that? You hear Shui, it's a Kishmak of art, right? The answer is because an oil is there to be Mechaper to atone for inappropriate thoughts you did with your mind. And your mind is something that's chesra and kiss. It has no cover. It's the only part of your body that has no cover. So therefore, the mind and your brain and your thoughts and your ideas as a Jew and chesra and kiss have to be emphasized so strongly in the context of the carbon ayla. Okay. Now, I just said, I want to speak about inappropriate thoughts and carbon ayla for a few moments. It's, I'm it's very kadai. There aren't enough she or him, in my opinion, at least that I've heard, that speak about inappropriate ideas, inappropriate fantasies, inappropriate machshavas and thoughts, and Torah on it. So let's look inside a little bit. When I was putting together the shir uh, late last night, I was thinking, you know, uh, quickly put in some, I want to put in some sources, because people don't talk about this Torah too much. I don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe I, I didn't hear it. Maybe people, nobody ever taught it to me because uh, I'm beyond help. Who knows? <laughs> you know, who knows? But, but you have to know where it says it in Shas and in, 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 in Chazal. So number one, first thing I want to say is this. A person has to know that inappropriate thoughts that we have, it's not like they're no big deal. So many people say, well, you know, the only thing that matters is what you do. I can't control my thoughts. The thoughts aren't a bad deal. First of all, it's very nice that's your opinion. To it's a disagreement. You and the Torah, okay? The Torah says, <laughs> you think thoughts are no big deal? Okay, the Torah says like this, and you say like this. Yeah. Thoughts aren't a big deal. There's a Gemara in Yuma, the Gemara says over there, these are the first words on the top of 29A. Open 29A in Yuma. First words, right at the top. If you're not careful, you start looking in the middle for it, you're going to miss it. The first words on the block says that the thoughts of sin are worse than the sin itself. You hear? That the thoughts of doing a particular sin, whatever that is, is worse, the Gemara says, than the sin itself. Now, that's what it says. Now, there's a lot of Tyra, with Tyra, with Tyra. What does that mean exactly? Rashi, over there, when he's on that Gemara, just Immediately, that Rashi, uh, that uh, going on the words, look at the side, the margin, Rashi, what does Rashi say? What does it mean that the thoughts of sin are worse than the sin itself? Rashi there, it's talking about um, basically a guy's fantasies and I imaginings about sinning with women, doing things that the Torah would prohibit a, a guy to do with a girl, a prohibited relationship. It's going on that. You shouldn't think, oh, well, you know, I'm doing it, you know, I'm acting out in that way, I'm under control. But my head's thinking of this all day or whatever it is. Should know, Rashi says that's what it's going on over there. Now, there's a commentary called the Maritzchias, which a yeshiva guy learned in the mirror, he's heard that name before, sitting in the back. The Maritzchias brings a Rambam to speak out this sugya. The Rambam, in the Mora Nevochim, uh, if you want the exact site, I'll give it to you after the shir. The Maritzchias brings out from the Rambam discussing this, what does this Gemara mean? 
So the Martchiv says, B'Shem the Rambam, like this, that the problem here is sinning with your mind. What's wrong with sinning with your mind and having inappropriate thoughts? So the answer is because that isn't, to some degree, the most important part of your body, to some degree. And, and he writes that using your mind inappropriately is a greater form of what's called being married b'malchus, rebelling against the king, meaning Hashem, than with other parts of your body. Because with your mind, you decide, I'm going to do this, I'm going to serve Hashem, I'm going to do mitzvahs, I'm not going to do wrong, I'm going to, I'm going to grow, I'm going to, you know, with that. And you take such an important aver, such a limb, such a, such a piece of you, such a thing, and you, with that, you're going to rebel against a rabbi shalaylam. I mean, that's, that's ground zero in serving God. And you're going to take that, your brain, your mind, you're going to use it to, to figure out how I can do all kinds of sins. And whether you do them or not, but that's what you're going to be busy with. You're You're rebelling against the king in a very, very ugly kind of strong way. Okay? Okay. Now, that's what he says. Now, the Chavetz Chaim speaks about this Indian very much as well. I was, like I said, I was trying to pull in together some quick sources on it. The... Chavetz Chaim has a well-known book. It's a little bookalet, a small one, um, that it was the last one he wrote, dealing with which of the 613 mitzvahs is a Jew able to perform today of the positive commandments and the prohibitions. And in Prohibition 156, where he lists, based on the minion, uh, the minion of mitzvahs of the Rambam, the Rambam's count of the mitzvahs, it says, Don't stray after your heart and after your eyes. So in connection with this, this is what the Chavetz Haim writes. I'm just translating. He writes, I think I actually copied this straight from an art school Feldheimish kind of translation. So that's where I got it from. It's on my translation. Look what he says. It's, so this is what the Chavetz Haim writes. It is very, very necessary to beware of reprehensible thoughts, for that is the foundation upon which everything depends. A person must hallow and purify your thoughts with all your might, and if a person transgressed this and brought to mind reprehensible thoughts about faith and fantasies of immorality, he writes, it is a great sin that's going to drive you out of Eilam Haba, the world to come, because if your metama is spoiling up your mind with these thoughts, it's going to defile all of your 248 limbs and parts of your body and the 365 primary sinews of your body, and a person has to be greatly beware of this. The Chavetz Chaim speaks about it. What's the point so far? Again, thoughts, it's not no big deal. It's something to work on. I want to share with you what the Naim Ali Melech. Anybody heard of the Naim Ali Melech or Ali Melech? The Naim Ali Melech says Gvaldik on this Indian of thoughts. Listen to what he says. If you learn the halachas of Kashis very well, maybe uh, some of the men in this room are uh, listening in the Torah anytime land or elsewhere, will one day take a smicha test. You're going to learn up the Yeridei, the halachas of Kashis. There's so here you're going to learn called Tam Ke'ikr. Tam Ke'ikr. What does that mean? Tam Ke'ikr. It's on your smicha test, yeah? It means that Tam Ke'ikr means that the taste of the non-kosher food is considered as its essence. Now, what does that mean, Tam Ke'ikr? Sometimes it happens, and the halachas are complicated, but sometimes if a kosher food has a noticeable taste of a non-kosher food in it, the kosher food is considered as being equal to the non-kosher food itself. When, what, the raisam, the rabbanit, lamaisa, it's beyond our scope for tonight. But there's a sugi called in kashris, tam, tam ke'ikr, that sometimes even though your food's kosher, the taste, being able to taste the non-kosher food, it, it able, it's able, like, the taste of the non-kosher food is treated like the essence itself. That's kashris. So what does this have to do with <laughs> what we're talking about? So the Naim Ali Melech uses this concept of, in his writings of Tam Ke'ikr, and he says that in a conceptual way, not in a kashrus application, but in a conceptual application of Tam Ke'ikr, it applies to our thoughts as well. He says you shouldn't think that if you only think of doing an Avera, and you fantasize about it, and you thus experience its taste in that way, like, well, oh, that would be interesting, I come here, I go there, I do this, you think about it conceptually, right? You're tasting it, that it's no big deal at all. He says the rule of Tom Ke'ikr, conceptually speaking, can apply, and that the thought of doing that can be equal in some cases to the essence of the sin itself. It's not just a harmless little Tom. Okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm gonna, not going to actually Iker, the main I'm going to Tom. I'm going to taste it in my head. I'm going to dream about going over here doing this. No, Tom Ke'ikr, it can have a negative impression on a person as well. You know who else I think speaks about this idea of thoughts very much? 
Rav Shimon Seifer. Who's Rav, uh, Rav Shimon Seifer's Atzal? So first there was the Chsam Seifer, and then his son was the Ksav Seifer, and his son is Rav Shimon Seifer. So in his Ksavim, he brings an interesting idea. He says, why is it that a guy wears a yarmulke? It's a classic question. Every man in this room is wearing a yarmulke. Well, you have to wear something on your head for it. It's interesting. So Rav Shimon Seifer writes, and the Tavadas brings this from Sharonbach, that we cover our heads with yarmulkes as if to say there has to be a limit where we allow ourselves and our imaginations to go. Yeah? Men need to work on this more than women, but a man has to know, listen, there's a, there's a roof over here, there's a cap, but how far do you allow your imagination, your hair, hurrah, your thoughts to go? You need to keep it under, uh, you need to keep it, uh, you need to keep it under wraps. And he speaks about it at the beginning of the reform movement, uh, and the reformers got in a lot of trouble with this because they took off their head coverings. In shul, out of shul, in Jewish context, not. And once you let that go, hey, let's change Judaism this way, this way, this way, you know? The getting rid of the yarmulke is also symbolic of, hey, let's let our imagination as to what Judaism could and should be roam free as well. And I'm not going to probably get into this because it's oh, a ganz harichus, a whole long thing, but Tzfas Emes and Parsh's boy in the year 5659 in his commentary discusses this age-old question, what is worse? Is it worse to do a sin or is it worse to think of doing a sin? So the answer, like all Jewish things, is both. From one perspective, we got to know that to some degree, doing a sin has to be worse, to some degree. Because if you look in the Torah, the Gemara Sanhedrin, elsewhere, based in the Jewish court, could punish the actually doing certain things wrong. Not just thinking about it. If a person in the time of the Beis HaMikdash would say, oh, I'm going to be a break Shabbos, well, I mean, you think about it, that's one thing, but the Beisden isn't going to give you a punishment. You know, when the, the Beisden could give punishments, the Jewish court, for thinking of doing something you had to do. So says Fasemis and Parshish boy in his commentary, one hand, you could say the actions are worse. Oh, but says Fasemis, oh, what are you going to do with Gemara? What are you going to do with Gemara and Yuma? Chavtesamanala 29a that I said before, right? Didn't it say before that the thoughts of the sin are worse than the actual doing it itself? So he gives a different reason. Why would that be? He doesn't go with the Maritzchias and the Rambam and the Mar Nevuchim. He goes in a different angle, Sesfas Emes. He says it's because what happens is that the thoughts and the planning to do an Avera and the memories of it, they remain with you after a sin. You know, if you do something wrong, you do it and it's gone. The deed, it's gone. But the thoughts and the planning and the how am I going to do it, you know, all of that, all of that the conniving and the, the machinations that a person has beforehand, that kind of stays with you because it, it was how you basically what you worked with your brain. But he says, but don't worry, it works on the flip side as well because all of the planning and memories and, and, and effort and, and, and scheming that you did to, to, for a mitzvah on the good side, that stays with you as well, you know? Um, our, our illustrious host who put together, you know, tonight's issue, you know, there's planning, there's planning of all. Who's coming and who's not, and when and where and what, and tables and chairs, and all of that planning and all that thought and all that brain power to, to work it out that Jews should come learn Tyra, Baruch Hashem, on a, on, a, on, a, on a work night. You know, it's going to be a work night. Baruch Hashem. That also stays with the person after. You know, a deed itself, even a mitzvah deed, can vanish when you do it, but all the planning that comes in before, that stays. So that's how the Sfas Emes tries to balance this out. Okay, we're Kanakan tonight. All right. So much more I want to say on the parasha. Okay. So chapter 6, verse 2, we're still pretty much like the first sentence of the parasha. It says, this is the law of the, the, of the oil, the elevation offering. Okay. And then it goes on and says, it is the elevation offering that stays on the flame on the altar all night till the morning. It is the elevation offering that stays on the flame. Now the word flame over here on the Chumash is Mike da. If you had to write in English, people sometimes ask me, could you say it slow? Mike da. It's like M-O-K-D-A. Mike da. So the elevation offering stays on the flame, the Mike da, on the altar all night till the morning. Now, one of the interesting ways to darshan the Taira is if you look many times, and I spoke about this last week in Parshish Vayikra, sometimes letters in the Taira will be unusually large or unusually small. If you look in the word Mike da over here, flame, the mem over here at the beginning of the word is written smaller than the other four letters of the word. Okay? Obvious question. Why? It's not a typo. Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu, write Mike da. Okay? That's for flame. Done. Write the mem small. 
Okay, why? What's pshat? What are we supposed to learn from it? So the, I'm going to give you two pshat from the Kotzker Rebbe said that the word maikta, the word maikta, the flame over here, is referring to enthusiasm. And if you learn through the Rishayinim, and certainly the Achrayinim, and the Balei Musar, and the Darshanim, and our parsha, you'll see that there's a ton of Taira on this verse in the last, especially thousand years, dealing with inspiration, and how do you relate to it, and cooling inspiration, and keeping inspiration. This is a big inspiration pasik if you go through the... You go through the commentaries. This pasik, okay? It is the ele- and that's what it talks about. It is the elevation offering. It stays on the flame. The flame is like referring to inspiration on the altar, and the altar is like sacrifice and serving Hashem, and all night until the morning, and all night it's like exile, and all night a difficult time. So all tired, 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 packed in here. Inspiration. So the Kutzka Rabbit goes in that direction. He says the Maita over here is going on the flame of enthusiasm. Maita means flame. The flame is. The enthusiasm we feel as Jews. And you know what the Kotzke Rebbe says? Plain English, he says three words. And I'm just translating it. He says, inspiration is overrated. Inspiration's overrated, yeah? He says, the mem is written small to tell you that mem, for the mic, the flame, it's inspiration is grossly overrated. What matters, and this is a very, very important theme, and I speak about it all of the time, doesn't matter how much inspiration you feel. Who cares if you're inspired? What matters is what you do with it. It doesn't matter if you're inspired, okay? People tell me sometimes, thank you, Rabbi Bregman. I, I like this year. I was inspired. Great. What are you doing in an hour? What are you doing in five minutes? What are you doing next Sunday night? What are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing in three seconds? I want to know what you're doing with it. The fact you felt inspired, good for you. So what? I mean, that's nice. You feel something, but so what? We're Jews. We feel things. That's what we do. You know, we get excited. We get inspired. What you do is what you do with it. That's what matters. The inspiration is turning it into something tangible. Just feeling inspired. So what? Not that hard. Yes, I felt inspired. Inspiration is overrated. Kutzke Rabbi says, you see that from the fact that Micah, which is going on the flame, meaning the flame of inspiration, it's small. Yeah, yeah. You're feeling flame. So what? Do what you're supposed to do. Do what you're supposed to do as a Jew. And guess what? Sometimes you're supposed to do, you have to do things and you don't feel like it. Sometimes it's mincha and you're a man, okay? And you have work to do. It's the middle of the day and you've got a million things to still do. Guess what? Get yourself up and schlep the shul. You've got to go daven mincha. Sometimes you feel the flame. A lot of times you feel nothing. Guess what? You're a soldier. You're a yid. You've got to do what you have to do. Don't make the whole thing about being a Jew is maikta. It's the flame. Guess what? You don't feel the, if you feel the flame, you'll do better. But if you don't feel the flame, you still got to do what you got to do because you have a mitzvah. Okay. That's the Kotzke Rebbe. Why is it that the Mem of Moifta is small? The Tambadas of Sternbach has a different approach. He says that the Mem is small in order to say that your flame, your passion for serving Hashem, it should not be something that's unnaturally forced. It's not something that you should push or expect to come all at once. It could start little. It should start little like the mem at the beginning of the word. And it could begin small and hopefully grow over time. And the Tamada says that if your flame will be allowed to grow naturally, you don't be like, oh my gosh, I've been learning tire for one year. How come I don't feel like that person and this person? How come I'm not as excited as her? And how come I'm not as motivated as him? And, uh, calm down. <laughs> you know, let, let your mem be a mem. It can be small, but let it grow over time. If you let it grow in a natural way, what will happen is that it will eventually endure for a lifetime. And he darshins, he expounds on those words, where it says that the mic that will stay on the flame, this, it stays on the flame, and then it says on the altar all night until the morning, meaning your whole lifetime. Your whole lifetime, you'll be able to keep your inspiration if you allow it to grow in a natural, natural, natural kind of way. Okay, good. Now, another, okay, so this is Ayla, this is Moita, this is Flame, good. Now, one of the big, big, big topics in our Parsha is something that people don't naturally think is an exciting topic, something called the Trumas Hadeshen. Now, there's a Torah commentary called Trumas Hadeshen. Many people haven't gotten around to it, many people have, but it's something to work on. But let's talk about the Trumas Hadeshen. And I'll tell you, it's an exciting topic. The truth is, sometimes I secretly harbor an idea that one day, if Hashem will allow me to in the future, I'm going to write a, a, a Torah book, I'll put it out in English, with a million good Devar Torahs about the Karbanis, 
the offerings. Many people think like, okay, the book of Exodus comes and I'm going to fall asleep, you know, at, once we get the Tyrant Harsinai and the Golden Calf for many, many, many weeks, you know, until we get to like the book of Bamidbar and then we'll have like stories and action and drama in the wilderness again, you know, like, you know, but there's so much good Tyra in the Carbonus. It's great stuff. You have to learn how to understand it, but it is. So what's Truma Sadashin? Chapter 6, verse 3. The Pasuk says, He, meaning a Kayan, shall separate the ash of what the fire consumed of the elevation offering on the altar. Okay? So so after the oil, the carbon oil is all burnt up. So the Kayan, the next day, is going to separate the ash of what the fire had consumed, and he puts it next to the Mizbeach, next to the altar. Okay? So plain English, the Trumas Hadashin, which is a mitzvah in the Torah, is the process by which a Kayan removes from the ash of the previous day of the temple service, he removes it, okay? Now, I would like, welcome, glad you can make it. Hello, come sit, 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 sit. You came right on time. So, I wanna explore what is this Trumas Hadashin, the removing of the ash from the temple service of the next day, with the commentary of Rav Shamshin Raphael Hirsch. Okay, here we go. It says like this. The first thing you have to know is this Truma Sadashin, your father, by the way, would love this stuff. You may already heard it, but, but he, this is kind of stuff. First thing you have to know about the Truma Sadashin is it involves removing the ash in the morning, and the Torah considers the removing of the ash uh, it's like it's, it's, even though it's done in the morning, it's the beginning of the temple service, like let's say on a Tuesday morning, it's considered to be the end of the temple service of the previous night, the previous day, okay? It's interesting. It's a new day, it's a new morning, it's a you know, tefillin, a new shahr, it's a whole new day. But the Torah considers, you're moving the ash, even though it's like the first thing I'm doing today, it's considered to be the conclusion of the previous day. That's number one. So Rav Hirsch says, hmm, that's interesting. Why is that? Also, he thinks it's very interesting that the ashes of the previous day's avoida in the temple, the service in the temple, you don't just throw it away or something. What do you do? The tiger says, you don't just get rid of the ashes from the previous day. You place it next to the mizbeach, next to the altar, where you're going to do the avoida, the work in the temple today. You take the, the ashes with the remnant from yesterday and you put that there. So number one, Rav Hirsch wants to know, why is it that even though it's like a new day, this is the, be the beginning of my temple service today is, the, is dealing with the leftovers and remnant from yesterday. That's kind of interesting. Number two, why, why can't I just get it out of here? Uh, forgive me for saying, but if there was a cleaning lady in the temple, she would have removed it, you know? Instead, they take the ashes, which is a little bit schmutzy, and then anyway, you put it there for the beginning of the, right next to where you're going to do the work the next day. What's this about? What's Truma Sadashin? So listen to what Rav Hirsch says. He says that this procedure, and I'm going to read to you from his words translated into English. It's good stuff. He says, this mitzvah of separating the ashes symbolizes the notion that your avoidance Hashem, your serving of Hashem today, it's not a brand new entity. Rather, it always has to be a continuity and a continuation of serving Hashem of the previous day. Listen to his words. Rav Hirsch is very like poetic in German and, and in English. It's very poetic. He says like this. He says, today, you're a Jew. Today brings no new mission. Your mission today is to carry out, but afresh, the mission that yesterday was supposed to be accomplished as well. And then he says, the very last Jewish grandchild stands there before Hashem with the same mission in life as his ancestors. The mission of today as a Jew, it's never brand new. It's a continuation of the avoida of previous times. You follow? So the beginning of the temple service every day involved dealing with and putting your hands in the ash the remnant of the work of the previous day. Because you're a Jew, there's no brand new avoidance. You wake up tomorrow, your job is to pick up where you left off yesterday and keep going. That's our job, individually, familially, communally, and as a tzibur as a whole. However, and that's why you put it right there next to the Mizbeach, where you're going to start doing your avoidance the next day. It's deep stuff. That's what it is. But if you read the Chumash, you just read these lines in Shul, you're half asleep. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Okay, ashes. Okay, got it. But something deep there. And then he says something else. He's saying, but you got to be very careful. You have to know that there's a very fine balance, very fine balance. And if you look at his commentary on the very next Pasuk, he says, you have to know something about the Haitzah, the removal of the ash. 
He says, every day, just because, you have to know that, yeah, I said a minute ago that you're a Hoytis Hashem, you're serving Hashem today, tomorrow, whatever. It's a continuity of everything that ever happened from Avram Avinu until this moment and beyond. But, he says, you have to know, there always has to be freshness in serving Hashem. You have to go to work every day as a Jew. It's like you never accomplished anything else before. Every day's avoida has to begin with a premise of freshness. And he said, just because you accomplished something in the past doesn't mean you should lose some of your desire to accomplish today. And you know what he says? Listen to his words. Rav Hirsch was a genius. I wish I got to meet him. One day after Tchiesa Mesim, I'm going to get in line, in line to meet him. Sometimes with my, my oldest son, he and I discuss. We discuss because, you know, when you talk to your kids about Amuna, faith, Yiddishkeit, you have to make it real because it is real, but you have to talk in tangible terms. Sometimes I tell my kids that after Mashiach comes, there's going to be Tchesemesim. All, all of the Jews who ever lived are going to come back to life, you know, and we're going to go meet them. So I often discuss with my kids, who do you want to go meet first? So one of my girls will say, I want to go in the line to meet Sarah Imenu. And, and my son says, no, I want to go meet the Vilna Gaon first. I'm going in that line. So I say, yeah, it could be a very long line. Maybe you should go in other lines. So one of my kids will go, I want to go in the line of the tzaddik that doesn't have a long line so he doesn't feel bad. You know what I'm saying? You know? We talk about this. I want to get in the line of Rav Hirsch. I want to talk with him in learning. I want to talk with him to retire. I want to, what do you mean Rav Hirsch? He was unbelievable in learning. Listen to what he said. You ready? He says, the thought of what has already been accomplished can be the death of that which still has to be accomplished. You hear that? Pay attention, even if, not just in avoiding, just in, in, in doing mitzvahs, but in everything in life. The thought of what has already been accomplished can be the death of that which still has to be accomplished. I'm going to say two points. Number one, you see, Truma's Hadashin and the Haitzah, they're taking out the ashes, but first has a balance. On one hand, continuity, everything came before, what we do every day is based on the avoida of that which came before us. Number two, has to be fresh. I want to say something else about this last line. This, I, know, I want you to apply this to life, career, work, making money, doing something with yourself. I want to explain to you, okay? I've seen this in life. I'll say this very clear, very bluntly. Successful people in life, no matter what they do, whatever they accomplish, whatever measure of accomplishment they have, they're happy for about five minutes. They're grateful to Hashem. They say, Baruch Hashem, I did this. It was a milestone. Can I in a heart? I'm very proud of what I accomplished. And then the party's over. They get back to work, okay? You know what losers do? People who are unsuccessful, they celebrate every little thing they did, even if it was an accomplishment, and they're always looking for the silver lining. Now, I'm pro-silver lining, but you know what? That's a formula for being broke. And that's a formula for not really accomplishing anything special in life, okay? You hear? You with me? Formula for not accomplishing anything special in life is to always be like, you know, I've never really accomplished any of my goals, but I've, I've accomplished, you know, quarters of gold, and thirds of gold, and eighths of gold. Hey, you're not bad, you know? I've done that. You know what? That's what people who are not really successful in this world, that's what they do, okay? You know what people who are really, really successful do? They accomplish, and no matter what they accomplish, the party's over in about five minutes, and then they're back at work grinding even harder than what before. Whether they heard what Hirsch said or not, that's the idea, the thought, and what has already been accomplished can be the death of that which is still to be accomplished. Who cares what you did yesterday? So what? It's done. It's over. New. Next. Go. What are you going to do tomorrow? Supplies and learning. A person, for example, a man should always feel very proud of all the fire he's learned up till today. Very nice. You should feel good about it. But a guy should also tell himself, if you sit here patting yourself on the back, you finished a masechli, you finished this, you finished... Guess what? If that's, if that's it. The thought, you, you're partying over what you did, forget about it. That could be the end of what you're supposed to do. Feel good about it. But you should know if in a week you know as much tire as you know today, it's a disaster. What did God give you another 168, uh, you know, 168 hours of life in the next seven days for? You did nothing with it. You know, so on and so forth. So don't feel so happy with what you always just did. Okay, you're happy with what you did in the past. You feel good. But you got to keep working. You got to keep moving. I'm just telling you this in life, because I know this from business, from law, from teaching Tyra, from trying to help people. Feel good whatever you did, okay? But afterwards, next, 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 next. Work, work, work. That's how you actually accomplish something in life. Don't sit there making a party for like a week and a month because you accomplished something today, okay? Very nice, but you know what? You're sitting there making a party, people end up being successful. They're already back at work five minutes later. All right. 
Now I want to bring out a mahalach from the Rebbeinu Yoyna. The Rebbeinu Yoyna, a Rishon, he says like this. There's a mitzvah in the Torah, chapter 6, verse 4, that says he, meaning the Kayan, will remove his garments and he puts on other garments. And when he does that, that's when he takes the ash to the outside of the camp. Okay? So what happened? It was likely that in the process of removing the ashes, the Trumas Hadashen, and the Haitzah, the mitzvah of taking it out, you're going to close, you're going to get dirty. So what would happen? So the Torah is going to say that the Kayan is supposed to change his clothes. Now you might have imagined, Rabbeinu Yaina says, that who's going to have this job of taking out the ashes? Who's going to have the job? Who's going to have the job of taking out the ashes? You might say, I don't know, any Jew, just any random guy. So the Torah tells us that that mitzvah of taking out the ashes was assigned to the, to the Kayhanim, the most distinguished people in Klal Yisrael. They had that job. Rabbeinu Yoyna says, why? Why give it to the Kohanim? They're going to get dirty. You know, they're, they're going to get dirty in the process. He says, you should know that a quote-unquote menial job like this was given to the Kohanim. Why? To demonstrate that all of Hashem's mitzvahs bring elevation to a person regardless of how they appear to other. You might think that, oh, I'm going to get dirty. That's not chash of a mitzvah. You know, we'll get anybody, maybe a bar mitzvah boy, eh, somebody else. They'll go take out the ashes and they'll get dirty. No. Rabbeinu Yanni said every single mitzvah brings elevation to a Jew. Every single mitzvah. There's no such thing as a mitzvah that doesn't bring elevation to a person. You get dirty in the process, so the, so the Kahanim are going to change their clothes. Rev Gifters, that's how it speaks about it. And you know who speaks about this? Also the same vart in last week's parsha, Chassam Seifer. The entire parsha last week was full of commandments given to the sons of Aaron, the Kohanim. It said it again and again and again. All those mitzvahs in last week's parsha were given to the sons of Aaron, comma, the Kohanim. The sons of Aaron, the Kohanim. They're getting all the mitzvahs. But when you look in the Torah, in chapter 6, verse 2, Finally, in the midst of Trumas Hadeshin, being busy with the ashes, it says over there, command Aaron, sab to Aaron, give a mitzvah to Aaron. Finally, Aaron's included in the mitzvah. All the other mitzvahs we've seen in Vayikra are command the sons of Aaron the Kohanim. Go tell Aaron's kids, the Kohanim, do this, bring that, go do this, this carbon. They should go do it. Finally, Trumas Hadeshin, getting busy with the ashes. Finally, Aaron's given the mitzvah. Why? So Chassam Soifer speaks about this in his writings. He says, you might have thought the clearing out the ashes from the previous day, yeah, that's not for the Kayin Godel. That's not for the, it's not for the Godel Adar. The, yeah, the Kayin Godel's going to be busy with this. The high priest, he's going to get busy with the Shmutz. So, Kamash Malon, he says, that's not the case. So the Torah, when it comes to the mitzvah, that seems like it's going to make you all Shmutzed up. Dafka, specifically, the Torah mentions Aaron, Specifically, hey, now we're finally giving you. Hey, Kayin Gadol, you get busy with this. Why? Because there's no mitzvah, he says, that doesn't elevate a person and bestow covenant on a person who does it. And you can tell who's serious about serving a Kaddish Baruch Hu by what they're willing to do. Some people are really happy to give a shear. But they're not happy to set up for the shear. They're not happy to advertise for the shear. You know, they're, they're happy to run a yeshiva, but not maybe happy, possibly, to, to do the dirty work and, you know, in setting up a yeshiva. Many people are happy to be an honoree for a dinner or to speak at a dinner in front of 300 people. I'm not happy to get on the phone like a chamar, like a donkey, for three weeks in a row, making hours of thankless phone calls, you know, in advance. You know, a yid is serious when they realize that every single mitzvah brings kedusha and aliyah to a person. If that's what you're busy with, if you relate to your Torah and your mitzvahs in that way, that they elevate you, everything elevates you, and we know you're okay. We know you're doing it right. No such thing as dirty work, yeah? Take it out the garbage. If it's from the Shabbos meal, it makes your wife happy. That's also elevating. Everything is elevating if it's serving Hashem. No such thing as dirty work, okay? Very, very important idea. And the, the commentaries, the earlier and later ones, are busy with this topic. Okay, now I want to speak to you a little bit about Elam Haba and how it's alluded to in our parsha. We're all over the road tonight, yeah? Baruch Hashem, yeah? How we doing? Good? Good? Yes? You're smiling? We're happy? Yes? Okay, you slept in from uh, Farakaway, right? Okay, no, so yeah. That have to make it worth your while. Okay, so we're still on this Pusik. The Pusik says he shall remove his garments and he's going to put on other garments. Takes off his garments and he puts on other garments. Who are we talking about? The Kayan now, 
who's busy with the truma sedation. I mean, look, he's going to get dirty in it. And being busy with the mitzvah, it's good for his neshama. But he got dirty, so he has to put on other begadim, other garments. And he takes out the ash to the outside of a camp to a pure place. Now listen to this. There's a great Rebbe, Rav Moshe of Kabrin, and I want to tell you how he darshins, he expounds this posik in Drush homiletically to allude to many of the Jewish beliefs in the afterlife are contained in this posik. I'm trying to have a little something for everybody in this uh, in the shir. Okay, so how does he do it? This is like this. He says, what are the words? He shall remove his garments. What is that referring to? That's referring to when a person, um, when you remove your garments, that means like a person's gonna pass away. So we take off their regular clothes, and then it says, and he will don other garments. The, the, so taking off your garments, that's when a person, God forbid, passes away. You take off uh, the regular clothes and put on other garments. Refers, he says, to the, what we call the tachrichim, the burial shrouds, that a person would be buried in, okay? And then the next thing in the Pasuk says, and you shall remove the ash. What is that, remove the ash? He says that's referring to the physical body of the person who passed away. Why? He says, just like ash is what's left uh, after, a, like, after there was a fire and a flame and the fire's not there anymore, what's left is the ash. The fire is going on the neshama. And so the ash is like, this, you know, symbolic of the body when the fire, the flame, the neshama is no longer there anymore. Then it says in the verse, and you remove the ash, then it says to the outside of the camp. Outside of the camp is referring to the actual burial. And if you know Jewish history, historically, the Jewish cemeteries were on the outside of the city. And then it says, and the next words are in the Pasuk, to a pure place is referring to where the person's soul has gone to Gan Eden. You hear? It's interesting. Ramosha Kobrin Darshans, you remove his garments, put on the other garments, remove the ash. Where's the ash going on the goof? It's going to the outside of the camp, outside of the machre, which is where the cemetery would be, to a pure place. Interesting, but I want to say a little more. You know, as a Jew, we don't dwell on the afterlife. We don't think about it all day. We have too much to do now to make sure that we'll be in good shape by the time we get there, right? We have to do the work now to make sure that by the time your big retirement comes, you'll be where you're supposed to. But there is some important stuff that we do have to know about it, at a minimum, that helps us take life seriously. So I want to share over with you for a moment a comment of the Vilna Goyim. Every man has to know this Vilna Goyim. When every lady will get married, she should say this over to her husband, followed by the words new, like, you know, new, come on, you gotta, you gotta produce already, you gotta learn. Listen to what the Goyim says. The Goyim says some unbelievable stuff in chapter 31 of Mishlei. The Vilna Goyim has a commentary on the book of Mishlei Proverbs that, Sh that Shlema Melech, King Solomon, wrote. Listen to what the Goyim says. By the way, we all know chapter 31. You know where you know chapter 31 from? It's Eishas Chayel. It's Eishas Chayel. Everybody knows Eishas Chayel. The Vilna Goyim has unbelievable stuff in his commentary on Eishas Chayel and his commentary on the whole book of Mishlei. You know what he writes? He says, and listen to this, especially the men. When you pass away, your neshama, guys, your soul, I mean, this happens to everybody, your soul goes up, and you're given 180 days to darshan, to expound, and say over the Divrei Torah, you know, in Gan Eden. You hear that, Shui? What are you talking It's unbelievable, no? You hear this guy? Tell me, don't listen to me, listen to what the guy said. You're given 180 days to, uh, upstairs, and all the, all the tzaddikim and all the righteous people, all their souls come around. This is what the Vilna writes. Chapter 31, verse 1, is commentary. Your father loves every Vilna Ask him tonight, okay? Hold on. Oh, I he'll get excited. He'll get excited on this Vilna He says over there that the, the person is basically given the floor. Picture like Lahavdo, like a, like, you know, it's like a politician is given a chance to filibuster, okay? You have 180 days, you have the floor. And the Vilna Gon says that if you say good, they say you said good. If you say you do good stuff, they'll tell you you said good stuff, okay? You have 180 days. So I'm just saying like this, okay? I mean, let's be honest. We all hope we have a lot of time to live and everything else. But can we say, who amongst us can say, we've so packed in the Torah that when you'll be up there and they'll say, okay, go. <laughs> you have 180 days. Are we ready to go? We have, do we know 180 days straight worth of the retire? We're ready to go. Shas and Paikim Rishayim, Allah, you know? It takes a lot of time to get that in there. It's a lot of material. 
Or will, perhaps, God forbid a person get up there and they can string together a few Tavar Tyras that they heard a couple times, and it's like, okay, you know, yeah. I don't know. The, uh, the way I understood the guy, <laughs> the way I understood it's probably more of a man thing who has a specific chiyav and limarat taira. So what's our thing when we get up there? We're perfect. I don't know. You're, 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 ter- <laughs> you're, you're, you're terrific. I'm just, I'm just, that's why I started this in the beginning saying especially right. the men. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. We can we can work on the guy tonight. It'll be our it'll be our project. We'll all drink coffee and we can we'll, we'll, we'll work it up. But, but let me but let me finish through the piece. So the point is this: that I'm not. Sometimes when people hear this, it's scary. But I don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind. My goal in life, when it comes to trying to be a professional developer of Jewish potential, is to try to help and encourage each person to do like a drop more than they were doing before. You know, like a personal trainer. If all you are lifting is five pounds, can you lift seven? If you're lifting 50, can you do 55? But we have to know that what um, that ultimately we're going to be actually held accountable for what we did and what we tried to do. And obviously, depending on our starting point, we, some of us have different starting points and later in life, God can only grade us according to the circumstances he gave us. But we ourselves have to work on this. Something we have to know. But I'll tell you something else. This is bad, just to Aisha's high, a woman says this good stuff. You like this? The guy writes over here, interesting, he says that while the Torah you learned in your lifetime, when you get up there, you have to, you have a chance to say, okay, no, go, say, yeah, say over. When it comes to your Maisim Toivim, the good deeds, the chesed and good and kind deeds you did, that you don't have to say yourself when you get there, that's announced when you get up there. And the Vilna Goyen expounds this on a Pusik at the end of Eishas Chayel, chapter 31, verse 31. It says, Which means, let her be praised in the gates by her very own deed. Which means, let her be praised in the gates by her very own deeds. It's understood that the her over here is referring to the neshama. Many of the commentaries understand Eishas Chayel, it's really all a parable dealing with the soul. That's what it is. And let her be praised in the gates by her very own deeds, says the guy, that the good deeds you did, that just announced, I guess, like when you get up there, that just announced your very own deeds are praised, it just kind of happens. The Torah you learn, that you have to actually like reproduce. Interesting idea, but well, if you're looking for a good Devar Torah to say on Eishas Chayel, you can, uh, you know, you can work on this. That's like the last line. For those people who weren't paying attention, before you give the bracha on the kids or whatever, you can, uh, you know, put in something to, uh, to hopefully wake them up. Okay? Let me just check on the time. Maybe I'll say over one last shtick of Tyra, one last piece, and we will... Ooh, a lot of stuff I'm going to say. Ooh, out of time. Okay. Maybe say one, over, one other piece, which is Kadai, worthwhile to learn and understand. Let's do this. Remember I said that in the Tyra over here, about the altar and the Mizbeach and the Ayla and the flame and all of this we spoke about tonight. What are we saying? We said that a lot of it has to do with inspiration and keeping the inspiration and turning it into action and maintaining it from the evening to the morning. Remember I said that earlier? Trust me, I said that earlier in the night, okay? <laughs> Trust me, I spoke about that earlier in the night, okay? So I want to speak about that one more piece, okay? It says over here in chapter 6, verse 6. Trust me, the commentaries are replete with this. That's a big theme. It says over here in chapter 6, verse 6. A permanent fire shall remain a flame on the altar and shall not be extinguished. So, so you can imagine when they expound it. A permanent fire is an ash tumid. That's your inspiration, you know. It should be a permanent fire, not just a short-term fire, a permanent fire. You see where I'm going with this? Permanent fire. It shall remain a flame on the Mizbeach. And, you know, and it shall not be extinguished. You should be inspired and always keep it going from the night to the morning. All that stuff we said, trust me, the commentaries are very, very busy with that in this parsha. I'd like to focus on this and one other Indian uh, before we'll wrap up tonight about in turning inspiration into action, maintaining it. One more thing I want to bring out. There's a fascinating medrash in Shir Shir Rabbah that tells the story of Hanania Mishal and Azaria. Who are Hanania Mishal and Azaria? So if you look in Tanakh, Hanani, Mishal, and Azariah were three of the G'daylim, three of the G'daylim Hadar, the preeminent Torah sages of their era, at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Bavel, the king of Babylon, who destroyed the first base Hamikdash. And these were three G'daylim, 
and they lived uh, basically under his auspices, and he wanted them to basically get involved with idolatry. It's a whole story. What? And to bow to it and give a credence. Lamaisa, they said, not interested. Bishamaisa, not at all. Forget about it. He says, okay, well, you know, I'm an anti-Semite. I know what to do. We'll kill you if you won't do it. So he throws them into this thing called the Kimshana Eish, this fiery furnace, and uh, nothing happens to them, nothing bad. He takes a peek in, and they go, look, get a cook, and they go, take a look. And they're like dancing uh, in a circle, like it's a chasana or something. They're having, a, they're serving the Rabbanisha, everything is fine. And uh, obviously, this is very impressive. So they, they're, they're allowed to come out, and they're able to come out. And Chazal bring that they didn't even smell like smoke. I mean, you would say, okay, it's a miracle. They went into like a 2,000 uh, degree uh, flame oven, and you know, they're alive. That, that's pretty impressive. But they didn't even smell like smoke when they came out. And a tremendous number of people saw this miracle take place. Okay, that's the background. So ready for what the Medrash says in Sher Shem Rabbah? The Medrash says, good question, an astonishing question. It says, what was the Kiddush Hashem that took place over here? What was the Kiddush Hashem that took place over here? Now, that's a pretty astonishing question. What do you mean, what was the Kiddush Hashem that took place over here? If you read that line in the Medrash, your yarmulke should fall off your head. Okay, you know, or whatever you have on you. What do you mean, what was the Kiddush That's the Medjish asks, what was the Kiddush Hashem over here? What do you mean? The three, three of the G'dayle Hadar, okay? It's like a Rav Chaim Kanievsky with Rav Steinman. Yeah, yeah, three of the G'daylem. And they were captured, basically taken in by the head anti-Semite in the world. He was trying to put him to death. For, and, and Hashem did an open miracle and spared their lives by putting them into a fire. What do you mean? Everybody saw and they were alive and everything... What do you mean, what was the Kiddush Hashem? What is it even the, the Medrash even asking over here? What kind of funny question is this to ask? No, it's a crazy question. If you take the Medrash seriously, take the Medrash seriously, what, what are you even asking? Hello, Chazal, what are you even asking over here? That's a Medrash. So Rav Dessler, Zatzal, Rav Dessler says a very nice vart in explanation. And here's the rule. I have some law students in the room. So you know when you have a black letter rule, Black letter uh, rule, you know, you want to highlight it, okay? Highlight this in magic marker. Here's a black letter rule. It says like this. Rav Dessler says, the measure of a Kiddush Hashem is never the initial event itself, but rather what comes afterwards. The measure of a Kiddush Hashem is not that thing, but what comes afterwards. It's the response to a Kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name, that is truly telling about its qualitative nature. So therefore, the Medrash is asking, says Rav Dessler, if the people of Bavel and the Jewish people had seen this open miracle, been wowed, and they just continue with their idolatry, then the miracle would have been no big deal. Everybody saw, they were inspired, well, okay, so what? What's a big Kiddush Hashem? The Kiddush Hashem is really what happened the next day. The tangible action that flows from that inspiration and the wow, that's really what the growth is. That's the profit. That's the profit we have. I don't mean P-R-O-P-H-E-T, meaning P-R-O-F-I-T, that kind of profit. The profit we have is what we do with it. That's the profit. If God does something amazing, a miracle, an amazing miracle, and takes the, the biggest tadikim in the world and has an obvious thing that you, you'd have to be blind and, and insane not to realize God did a miracle... Okay, nice, good, fine, that's fine. Okay, so far so good. So what's the big deal? What's the Kiddush Hashem? The answer is, it's not the miracle, it's what happens after. It's not the inspiration, it's not the wow moment. It's what do you do afterwards. So when we look at our lives, and it's one of the themes in the parsha, the flame should be continuously burning and stay on the altar forever and never be extinguished. Very nice. Bottom line, we all get excited. What do you do with it? I can tell you whatever bit of Tyra I know, it's because I get excited, I want to learn, I want to do something, and I try to do it, okay? I get excited and I do it. I have an idea for a class and I write it down. I see a great Tavar Tyra and I try to like take a note so I can use it in six years from now, it'll come up and then answer to a question, it'll fit with something else, I'll bring up one day, you know? That's what we do, that's what we do. Whatever profit we have, whatever bit we grow, it's that. People who actually become something as Jews, as Tamid Chachamim, as servants of Hashem, men or women, it's people who feel an inspiration, they do something with it. They concretize it. 
some way, small way. It could be small. You get excited and you do something. You have an idea in Shemona Esrei, you do something immediately. Do something. Something. A bit little. Something. If you do that, you have profit. Okay? It could be a $5 profit, a $0.50 profit, a $50 profit. But you have profit. If you don't, you won't. That's really the key. That's actually how we grow. And the last thing I'll tell you is that Ramban from the Sefer Emunah Betochen. There's many Sfarim called Emunah Betochen, faith and trust. The most famous one is more contemporary, comes from the, the Chazanish, the Chazanish Emunah Betochen. But the Ramban has a Sefer like that, and he says, and he brings a proof. Last thing, last thing, last thing. There's a Pesach in Shir Hashir, in the, the book called Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 7. Look it up, Shir Hashirim. It says over there, if you dare provoke God to hate me or disturb his love for me, while he still desires it. Okay? So while he still desires it, how do, you, how do I say this in English? I wrote it transliterated. Ad she techpat. Ad she techpat. He still desires it. Ad she techpat. The Ramban notices that the word desires it, techpat, techpat is the same as the word chefetz. The same shayrish. What's a chefetz? A chefetz is a thing. A chefetz is a thing. What does that mean? He says, when you desire it, you have a want, a desire. Let's say for spirituality, you have the, the techpat, you want, you have to turn it into a chefetz. You have a desire, turn it into a chefetz. Desire, you turn it into a thing. A desire, you turn it into a thing. The Ramban says, if you do that, that's the way you concretize it. You have a desire, I want, I want, I want spiritual. Hashem desires me, right? And that's what the verse says. I don't want to disturb the, Hashem's love for me while he still desires it. You desire, you desire, you want, you want love of Hashem, you want. Guess what? Turn it into a chafetz. Turn it into Ramban says, turn it into something real and concrete. You do, you have profit. If not, you'll be like everybody else. That's all. That's, that's the key. What I try to work on every day, and that's what the Rabbi Nishalem writes in his Tyrant. It's a big theme in our parsha. That's what each and every one of us have to do. Anyway, let's call it a night. This is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. Hope you enjoyed this week's parsha. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, send me an email, director at jeln.org. I wish everybody a freilichen purim, and I guess I will see you next week. Good night. Torah sends cameras out day and night to video and audio record the best Torah classes around. We then make them available to you for free. So what are you waiting for? Watch, listen to, and download lectures on TorahAnytime.com today.